The martyrdom of Stephen is one of the great turning points in human history. The martyrdom of Stephen is one of the great turning points in the early history of the church. The martyrdom of Stephen deserves to be ranked with the other great events that inaugurate the new covenant and inaugurate the history and expansion of the church. When the apostles tell the gospel story, they start with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, and then Jesus' ministry of healing and proclaiming and casting out demons and raising the dead. They talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. They talk about his resurrection and his exaltation. They talk about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Those are the great events that lay the foundation of the church and begin the expansion of the church throughout the world. And the the martyrdom of Stephen deserves to be in that list of events that inaugurate the mission of the church. In the book of Acts, up until Stephen is stoned to death, everything takes place in Jerusalem. Nobody leaves. There is no mission to the Gentiles. There's not even a mission to any cities outside of Jerusalem, except insofar as people come from outside Jerusalem and bring people into Jerusalem to be healed by the apostles. But as soon as Stephen dies, the mission of the church begins. In Luke and Acts, which are two-volume work, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, written by the same person, Luke, they form a two-volume story. And in the Book of Luke and Acts, the mission of the church doesn't begin with the cross. The mission of the church isn't inaugurated by the resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem and stay there. It's not even inaugurated with Pentecost. The mission of the church outside of Jerusalem is inaugurated by the martyrdom of Stephen. It's only when one of Jesus' disciples joins his blood to the blood of Jesus. It's only when one of the disciples suffers in and with Jesus that the church begins to expand and begins to proclaim the gospel out of Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's because of the martyrdom of Stephen that there is what Luke calls a diaspora. He uses the word, the verb form of that word when he talks about the scattering of disciples from Jerusalem except the apostles. It's a diaspora. The word diaspora was already a term within Judaism. The diaspora refers to the dispersion, the scattering, first of the northern kingdom of Israel because the Assyrians invaded and scattered them, And then the southern kingdom of Judah, which was uh, conquered by the Babylonians and the Jews were scattered from Judea, from Judah. It's the scattering of the people from the land. And this looks like it might be the beginning of the church's exile. The church has been in Jerusalem, which is home base, but now they're going into exile. And perhaps someday everyone will return to Jerusalem. I don't think that's the way that Luke is using this idea of diaspora. It's something of the opposite. Everything is upside down in the New Testament. In the Gospels, Jerusalem, Jerusalem has become the Egypt. Who is it in the Gospel of Matthew who kills little babies? Pharaoh? Herod? Herod, yes. The king of the Jews. What is the city that threatens small children? 
It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the Egypt. And when Jesus escapes from Jerusalem, he's being called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I call my son, Matthew says in Matthew chapter 2. Jerusalem has also become a Babylon. And the people of God, the true people of God, the disciples of Jesus are in exile within Jerusalem, Babylon. And the beginning of their scattering is not the beginning of an exile, it's the end of an exile. If Jerusalem is Babylon, then the disciples leaving Jerusalem is like the Jews leaving Babylon and going back home and reclaiming their inheritance. That's what's happening with the diaspora in Acts chapter 8. The disciples are leaving their place of exile, Jerusalem, to go out and claim the inheritance that's been promised to them. What is that inheritance? Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, the world is the inheritance of the disciples of Jesus. Jesus has been given the nations as his inheritance, and he shares his inheritance with his bride. He shares his inheritance with his people. Abraham, Paul tells us, isn't just heir of Judea. He's not just heir of Canaan. He is heir of the world, and we are the children of Abraham. This is an upside-down exile, an inverted exile. It looks like the church is going into exile with the hope of return to home base, but that's not what's happening. Jerusalem has become an enemy of the gospel, and now the disciples are spreading out from the new Babylon, which is Jerusalem, and going out to claim their inheritance. And the first place they stop, the first place Philip the deacon stops, is the city of Samaria. This is on Jesus' itinerary at the beginning of the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Philip goes to one of the places that Jesus has already designated as one of the places where his disciples will be witnesses. Remember what Samaria is. Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Samaria was founded by King Omri of the northern kingdom, but the northern kingdom was founded when Jeroboam took 10 tribes and separated from the house of David. They didn't want Solomon to be their king. They didn't want the house of David to rule over them. So they separated and, and instituted a separate kingdom in the north. And eventually under Omri, Samaria became the capital of that northern kingdom. Samaria is the capital of Ahab and Queen Jezebel. It's an officially idolatrous city from the time it's founded. Omri, actually Ahab, builds a temple to Baal in Samaria. Within the northern kingdom of Israel, the officially sponsored, the royally sponsored worship is the worship of Baal. Jeroboam had already set up golden calves. Golden calf worship is part of the official religion, the established religion of the northern kingdom. And the Lord continued to send prophets to them to call them back to himself, but they continued in their idolatry and eventually he sent in the Assyrians to scatter them. And then things got even worse because it was a policy of the Assyrians to bring in outsiders when they conquered a territory, they would bring in other people to come in 
They would settle other people to break up any kind of possible resistance. As long as there was kind of ethnic continuity and ethnic unity within the northern kingdom, that they might band together and resist the Assyrians. So the Assyrians brought in all kinds of people. There are lots of different nations that settle in Samaria and in the area surrounding Samaria. It was, a, it was an officially idolatrous kingdom, and now it's even more full of idolatry. And because of that, the Jews despise the Samaritans. Gentiles are unclean, but Gentiles are kind of out there at a distance until the Romans come. But Gentiles are unclean. You can deal with the Gentiles because you stay away from them. Samaritans are worse because they're unclean brothers. The conflict with your neighbor, that's one thing. If you have conflict with your brother, that really raises the temperature. That's the kind of conflict and strife that existed between the Jews who lived in Judea and the Samaritans in the northern kingdom. And it even affected Jesus' disciples, the 12. You might remember the story in the book of Luke, in the Luke's gospel, where James and John want to bring fire down on a city that has rejected Jesus. Jesus tries to come into the city and the elders of the city say, no, we don't, we don't want you to come in. You're a dangerous person. We don't want to get on the wrong side of anybody, the Romans or King Herod or the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. We'd prefer if you don't come into our town. And James and John go to Jesus and say, can we pray for fire to come down from heaven and destroy this city? That's a town in Samaria, full of Samaritans. And James and John want to destroy it. They want it to be wiped off the map like, map like Sodom was. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, never gave up on Israel. In spite of their continuous rebellion, their centuries of idolatry, in spite of rejecting the prophet, prophetic ministry of Elijah and Elisha and dozens of other prophets that were sent to the northern kingdom, in spite of all that, the Lord yearns for Samaria. He wants his people back. He wants Ephraim back. Ephraim is the prophetic name for the northern kingdom. Ephraim is his son. How can he forget his son? He can't. And so there are promises in the prophets again and again that Ephraim will eventually be restored to the house of David. Ezekiel talks about this. One of the things that's going to happen, Ezekiel says, after the exile, when Israel is raised up from the grave of exile, then the stick of Judah and the stick of Samaria, the stick of Judah and the stick of Ephraim are going to be tied together and recombined, and there will be one king, a new David, reigning over the entire people of God. And now, because of the scattering of the disciples from Jerusalem, because of this beginning return from exile in Jerusalem, a herald comes to Samaria. And he heralds the good news about a new David. And he calls the Samaritans to return to the house of David. And they do. This is one of the great moments in the history of the kingdom of Israel. The, the nations, the two nations that have been separated for many, many centuries are being restored together 
under one king, combined and joined together by one spirit. There is fire from heaven that comes down on Samaria, but it's not the kind of fire from heaven that James and John were hoping for. It's the fire of the spirit that comes on the Samaritans when Peter and John lay their hands on the Samaritans. And the Samaritans are joined together with the Jews of Jerusalem as one new man, one people under one king. The stick of Ephraim and the stick of Judah are combined. That's all in the background of the story that Luke tells about Samaria. In the foreground is a character named Simon. We know him as Simon Magus. Simon Magus is a magician, and he dominates the religious life of Samaria. It seems fitting. Samaria's religious life would not be dominated by people who are studying the Torah. It's not dominated by people who are faithful to the Word of God. It's dominated by a magician who does amazing things. He draws the attention and the amazement of everyone in Samaria, both small and great, Luke tells us because he does wondrous things. Everybody says he's like an incarnation of the power of God. He's formed a false church with him at the center. And then along comes Philip. And Simon immediately realizes he is not the great power of God. Philip's got power that Simon can't even imagine. And it's interesting, you can look at the text I won't take time to point this out. You can look at the text and how it's written. The way that Luke describes the people's reaction to Simon is just the same as the way he describes Simon's reaction to Philip. Simon causes amazement. Philip comes along and Simon is the one amazed. Simon is the one who is the great power of God. Then Philip does things that are even more powerful. And Simon recognizes this. And he himself believes and is baptized. What's happening in Samaria is what has also already happened in Jerusalem. The disciples are not just proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and saving a few individual souls. They are causing a revolution of elites, an overturning of elites in every city that they visit, and particularly religious elites. You can trace this in the early chapters of Acts. People are moving from, their, from a devotion to the temple and submission to the leaders of the temple to the apostles. Money is moving from the temple over to the small community of disciples in Jerusalem. There's an alternative temple taking place, a living temple that's being formed in Jerusalem. And material and people are flowing from the temple establishment to the church. Of course, this is is one of the reasons why the temple officials don't like the apostles. They see everybody, they see 3,000 people, right, of the day of Pentecost get baptized and become part of this new movement. And that means they're giving up, to some degree at least, their loyalty to the temple. Money is moving. It's when, you get, when, when money starts moving, then people start, getting, start paying attention. Money is moving from the temple over to the church. And people are bringing their treasures, not to the treasure house of the temple. They're bringing their treasures to the feet of the apostles. There's a revolution of religious elites taking place already in Jerusalem. Paul's going to do that wherever he goes. He goes to a city and he frequently confronts some religious establishments. 
and that religious establishment is thrown into turmoil by Paul's very presence there and by his message. And when Paul leaves, maybe that religious establishment is still there. It's kind of tottery now. But there's a new religious group established in every town that Paul visits. There's a church. And over time, the old religious establishment is decreasing and the church is increasing. That's what's happening in Samaria. Philip comes and instead of him being amazed by this great magician, the great power of God, the great power of God, this great magician, is amazed by Philip. And the, the man who is at the center of Samaria's religious life gets baptized and becomes a disciple of Jesus. And he starts following Philip around, some kind of puppy dog. He wants to be around Philip because he knows that Philip has something that he doesn't have, which is true power. The story of Simon is not entirely, it's, it's has got an ambiguous ending. As soon as Simon sees what the apostles can do, they got magic in their hands, they can lay hands on the Samaritans and confer the Spirit. And Simon says, I want to do that. He offers money. This is probably the way that he acquired certain powers and skills and spells before. He would offer money and he would get some kind of instruction from another magician and he would learn a new spell that he could then use in his magic work in Samaria. And Peter severely rebukes him. Peter has already heard Jesus frequently condemn people who are worshipers of mammon and now he sees it rising up from Simon. And Peter condemns him. We don't know what happened to Simon, but whatever happened to Simon, something is, something is new in Samaria. Samaria is filled with joy. Samaria is filled with the Spirit. Samaria is brought back into the kingdom of David, the greater David, Jesus Christ. Samaria is no longer following Simon. They become part of the great and exceeding great army that's raised up from the grave of exile and is returning to the land to uh, to claim it. Jesus told his disciples to go from J Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's the big arc, of course, of the book of Acts. You start out in Jerusalem, you go to Samaria with Philip, Paul goes to the Gentiles and he ends at the capital of the Gentile empire in Rome. But Philip already anticipates this. Philip's story is kind of the book of Acts in miniature. He starts out in Jerusalem serving tables as one of the seven deacons who are selected by the apostles to care for widows. Then because of the martyrdom of Stephen, he leaves Jerusalem. He's part of the dispersion. He goes to Samaria. And then the Spirit speaks to, them and speaks to him and tells him to go to a desert place where he's going to meet a Gentile from a very distant land, an Ethiopian eunuch, a Cushite. Cush appears in the Bible shortly after the flood. The name Cush is first appears in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10. And Cush doesn't play a prominent role in the Old Testament, but there are occasional encounters between Israel and Cush. And Cush always is this mysterious, uncanny power to the south, just over the horizon of the known world of Israel. But sometimes it rises up. And sometimes it's invade, it invades during the, during the time of King Asa of Judah, uh, one of the uh, Ethiopian rulers, one of the Cushite rulers brings a, what uh, Chronicles describes as a million man army against, some, uh, against Judea, against Judah. 
That's the, that's the tenor of Cush in the eyes of the people of Judah, in the eyes of the Jews. But all the way through the Old Testament, there's pro- there are promises that Cush, Ethiopia, will one day become part of the kingdom of God. Psalm 87. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The world loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. I will make mention of Rahab, that's Egypt, and Babylon, among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, Cush. This one was born there. Of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord shall count when he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Someday, Philistia. Someday, Egypt. Someday, Ethiopia are going to be brought into the city of Zion and be treated as home-born children of Zion. And we see the first glimmer of that, the first glimpse of that, when Philip goes to the desert and encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. The hopes for Cush are being realized. And not just the hopes for Cush, but hopes for eunuchs. Eunuchs were excluded from the priesthood, for sure. You couldn't be a priest if you were mutilated. Eunuchs were excluded from the congregation of Israel. You could be a worshiper of the Lord as a eunuch, but you had to do it at a distance. But Isaiah holds out the promise that someday the Lord is going to bring the eunuchs back and he's going to make the eunuchs fruitful. They're going to be restored to the congregation of Israel. And in Philip's ministry to this, to this Ethiopian eunuch, that begins to happen. This one, this Cushite, this eunuch, is treated as a homeborn son, washed in the waters of baptism, just like the Samaritans, just like the disciples in Jerusalem, joined together with the people of God, one baptism with one Lord and one King. In Scripture, there is scattering, and then there's scattering. There are diasporas, and then there are diasporas. Sometimes diasporas occur because God's people are unfaithful. The northern kingdoms gets driven out by the Assyrians because of their defiance of the prophets of God. The people of Judah get driven out by the Babylonians because they resist the prophets and they don't hear the word of the Lord. But there are also dispersions and diasporas and scatterings that don't have anything to do with the sinfulness of God's people. That's what's happening with the disciples here. It's because of their faithfulness in Jerusalem. It's because of Stephen's faithfulness that he's put to death. It's because of the people's faithfulness in confessing Jesus, their refusal to hold back from proclaiming the name of Jesus. That's what causes the dispersion. But whatever the cause, whether it's because of sin or not because of sin, every scattering in the Bible is an opportunity for mission. Every single one is. When the Babylonians scatter the people of Judah, they go off into the Babylonian empire. And what do they do? 
They become Daniels and Shadrachs, Meshachs and Abednegoes. They become Mordecais and Esthers. They become Nehemiahs and Esthers. They are sown into the Babylonian Empire. They're displaced from their homeland and they hope to go back. But as soon as they're dispersed, they are also sent. Every scattering is a sowing. That's true not just in the Bible, of course, but that's true of the church to this day. We have the privilege, the enormous blessing of being able to stay in place. We don't have warlords ravaging the countryside. We don't have to flee from our homes because there's a civil war going on in our country. But not all believers in the world are in that kind of stability. There are many Many believers in the world today who have been scattered from their homes, who have fled from their homelands because of war, because of persecution, because uh, they've been because they displaced by some civil conflict. But all of those dispersions are part of God's plan for bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. There is no scattering that is not also a sowing. And every sowing is a promise of harvest. Whatever kind of persecution we might face, whatever kind of pressure we might face, whatever kind of displacement we might experience, all of it is a commissioning. All of it is a sowing. All of it is an opportunity for mission and also a promise of fruitfulness. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is Lord of his church. And then in his mysterious guidance of his church, he sends his people out in flight but also commissioned to carry the gospel, to evangelize. Father, we pray for those brothers and sisters throughout the world who this very day are displaced from their homes, who are living in refugee camps throughout the world. We pray that you encourage them, that you would give them this vision that they are sent by you into those places of dispersion to be your witnesses in that place. And we pray that you would give us that confidence that whatever we face, whatever displacement or pressure we face is also an opportunity to carry out the mission of Jesus Christ and to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.